The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. Again, church, if you have a Bible with you, I hope you do, open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 19. 1 Samuel chapter 19. I've titled this morning's message, From Bad to Worse. Many of us have probably heard of the second law of thermodynamics, but if I ask you to tell me what that is right now, you might draw a blank. But in everyday language, the second law of thermodynamics says that everything tends toward disorder. In a closed system, everything tends toward disorder. Order is not natural. So in, in order to have order, no pun intended, but in order to have order, work has to be done. Disorder is the natural state of things. Let, let me explain what I mean. So if you never work at cleaning your room, so you never actually put the clothes back in the drawers or wash the dirty clothes or what have you, it won't take long before you're going to need to hire um, a hazmat team to come in and clean up your bedroom, right? <laughs> Uh, some of the, some of, for some of you, I think that struck close to home, uh, perhaps. Or consider your own, your house, the dwelling you live in. The, the vinyl siding on your house doesn't get better looking each year. The colors begin to fade. Cracks start to appear. Different pieces of siding go away in a strong wind. And before long, you have to consider replacing your vinyl siding. It tends toward disorder. Our roads and our highways... They don't get smoother year by year, do they? The weather, the elements, and yes, of course, all of the traffic, these things wear at the roads, and every so often we have to repave our roads. And the second law of thermodynamics, it even applies to our bodies. As we get older, our muscles get weaker, our skin begins to wrinkle and sag, and our hair either turns gray or it turns loose, right? Yeah, now I'm getting personal, exactly. (laughs) These are all physical examples of the second law of thermodynamics. And the Apostle Paul, Scripture even affirms this. The Apostle Paul says, The whole of creation is groaning under the pains of childbirth until now. The world we live in is a fallen and broken world. It, It doesn't act as it was originally created to act. But I want you to know also the second law of thermodynamics. It doesn't only affect the physical world. It also affects, it affects everything, including our relationships with one another. Relationships tend toward disorder, not order. Consider marriage, for example. Marriage is a good thing. It's a gift from God. I don't mean to imply that singleness is not a good thing as well. Singleness is also affirmed as a gift from God. But for the purpose of the illustration, let me stick with marriage. If you have a good marriage... You know the reason you have a good marriage is because you and your spouse have worked hard at your marriage. You see, marriage is glorious, but it's not easy. In fact, marriage tends toward disorder, not order. In other words, if you don't work at your marriage, you'll quickly find yourselves in disorder rather than order. 
And the same thing could be said about any of our relationships, those with our friends, those with our classmates, those with our co-workers, and those with our fellow church members. If we don't work at these relationships, if there's no real desire in our hearts to understand the other person, then these relationships tend toward disorder. And the second law of thermodynamics also applies to our relationship with God. Hear me well. You and I will never, ever, ever drift into a deeper relationship with God. It doesn't just like, oh, you know, what happened? I'm, I'm now in the most glorious, deepest relationship I've ever had with God. You see, God, by His very definition, is order. He's the definition of order. But you and I, we are sinners. And we tend toward disorder. And so if we're not actively pursuing our relationship with God, that is, if we're not regularly reading His Word, if we're not regularly praying, if we're not regularly gathering together as His people, if we're not regularly confessing of our sins, if we're not doing those regular practices that are part of any constructive relationship, then we will tend to fall away from God, not get close to God. And sometimes that falling away it's so slow, it's almost imperceptible. You know, we move ever so slightly, one little step, maybe half a step, away from God. And then another half a step. And then another little step. And it might be six months down the road, it might be six years down the road, when we all of a sudden realize, how did I ever get this far away from God? If I could use a diet to illustrate that problem... Did you know that if, if a person consumes 100 calories per day, just 100 calories, so one banana, two Oreo cookies, less, less than a 12-ounce can of soda, okay? 100 calories. You eat 100 calories extra a day. In one year's time, you will gain 10 pounds. Yeah, somebody said, have mercy, right? That's right. This movement from order to disorder, it's slow, and imperceptible. But everything in our lives, we tend toward disorder. Now you might be wondering by this point, okay, I didn't know we were here for a, a lesson on the second law of thermodynamics. What does this have to do with our message today? Well, King Saul is again the main character of our text. Over the last several weeks, we've seen that time and time again, Saul has lost his focus. God has removed his spirit from Saul. David now has the spirit of God. And King Saul's eyes are on David instead of being on God. And because he lives in a broken, disordered world, and because Saul isn't looking to God for order, Saul is tending toward disorder. Saul keeps going from bad to worse. So if you're in 1 Samuel 19, say Amen. I'm going to read those 24 verses. Then I want to make four comments uh, from our text. And so... Follow along as I read chapter 19. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if you, excuse me, and if I learn anything, I will tell you. 
And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David. And Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul. And he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall and David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed, that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed, with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me, and thus and let my enemies go, so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Saul at Ramah, and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Siku. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth in Ramah. And he went there to Naoth in Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, Is Saul also among the prophets? It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would bless this time. Use this word. I pray that your spirit would accompany the words that I have to share, that you would use this time now to mold us and shape us evermore into the image of your son, Jesus. 
Pray this in His name. Amen. So, central idea for today's message is when we take our eyes off God, our problems go from bad to worse. When we take our eyes off God, our problems go from bad to worse. I want to make four points from our text this morning. Point number one is this. Jonathan to the rescue. Jonathan to the rescue. We see this in verses 1 through 7. We read there in verse 1 that Saul speaks to Jonathan, his son. He speaks to all of his servants. And he tells them that they should kill David. Now this is an important turning point in the relationship between Saul and David. Because up until this point, Saul hasn't said anything publicly about wanting David dead. Saul's tried to kill him himself. Saul's secretly conspired to have the Philistines kill David. But this is the first time that he speaks to the people closest to him about killing David. But as we saw last week, Jonathan and David, they're, they're like this, okay? They're, they're like this. In our text today, it says Jonathan delighted much in David. So what do you think Jonathan's going to do? I mean, he's just going to sit on that news? Well, of course not. Straight away, Jonathan tells David about Saul's plans to kill him. But there's more. You see, Jonathan actually goes to bat for David with his dad, King Saul. Jonathan intercedes for David. Jonathan becomes David's advocate. And in verse 4, we're told that Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father. And without rereading everything that Jonathan said to his dad, but basically he says this, he says, why do you want David dead? Don't, don't you understand all the good things that he's done? He's risked his life for you when he fought against Goliath. And you and Israel, everybody rejoiced when that happened. Dad, David's an innocent man, and it would be a sin for you to kill an innocent man. Now, by God's grace, Jonathan seems to actually talk some sense into his dad's head. We're told that Saul listened to David. You see, he didn't just hear the words. He wasn't that kind of listening. He actually listened to his son. And Saul swears that he won't have David put to death. Now, we just read the rest of the chapter, and so you know that that promise, he's not going to keep that promise for very long but if it weren't for the courage of a son to talk to his powerful dad, there would still be a bounty on David's head. So for however brief a time it was, David's been given a second chance. David is in Saul's presence as he was before. But beloved, let's, let's think about some application for ourselves here. Because you know, it's not enough for us to carry our Bibles around with us. and you know, I got my Bible with if we don't actually apply the Bible into our lives. Do you know anybody who's suffering under the thumb of a powerful person or maybe a powerful organization? Maybe that someone is in your workplace. Maybe in your workplace not everyone's given the same shot at success. You've actually heard your boss talk disparagingly about a group of people. You know, she said something like, you know, as long as I'm the boss here, as long as I'm in charge, people like that, whatever that may be, but people like that aren't ever going to have a chance to succeed. And by God's grace, you have a relationship with your boss so that she might listen to you. But then again, maybe she won't. 
Maybe if you say something, she's going to lump you into that group of despised people. If that describes you at all, do you think you would you have the courage in the face of uncertainty to do the right thing and advocate for a group of people? It might, it might cost you your job. It might mean kissing away any chance of a promotion. But will you advocate for them nevertheless? Will you rescue them? Or what about the circumstances of the most vulnerable amongst us? Consider the cases of little boys and little girls who are still living in their mother's wombs. In the United States of America, 100 babies in the womb are aborted every hour. They're human beings. They have their own unique DNA. They have their own blood type. They can feel pain. Their heart is beating 150 beats per minute plus. And yet we as Americans allow for a hundred of those little babies to be killed every hour. Will we advocate for them? Will we open our lives and our homes, maybe to make a home for the unwanted baby? Will we rescue those who can't rescue themselves? Point number one. Point number two. We see David actually does rescue himself. We learn in verse eight that there was war again. You know, when I when I read that. I make enough comments about Forrest Gump that I think you know I'm a fan of Forrest Gump. Uh, But when I read that, I I thought about Forrest Gump in the movie when he says, I went to the White House again, and I met the President of the United States again. Um, Well, here in our text, there there is war again. Uh, A few weeks ago, I told you the war between the Israelites and the Philistines, it, it wouldn't even make the front page of the Jerusalem news. It happens all the time. And we're not giving, I mean, here's a case in point. We're hardly giving any details other than the fact that David went out against them and he took them to the woodshed again. And the Philistines flee before David. That's, that's all that we're told directly that happens. But based on these other occurrences, based on the other skirmishes, we can safely assume that the people of Israel, they've taken notice again. Here's, here's, here's yet another victory for David. Here's another, here's another notch in his belt. And who knows, maybe the women were singing again. Saul has his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. We don't don't know for sure. But whatever happened, we do know that it caught or aroused the green-eyed monster of jealousy in Saul's life again because we're told in verse 9 immediately that a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. Some of your translations there will say an evil spirit from the Lord. In any case, we're not talking about a demon here. Rather, we're talking about a spirit that brings about harmful or evil consequences. And that may come as a shock to some of you, especially since we know that this harmful spirit is from the Lord. But as I've argued before, I believe this is the negative discipline of the Lord in Saul's life. And negative discipline is rarely pleasant. We don't discipline our children negatively by giving them what they want. You know, no parent has ever said to their child, you know, if you don't turn in your homework this week, I'm going to give you a big bowl of ice cream. Right? Well, children, children, you can hope, right? You can wish. But that, that, that's not the way it happens. We discipline them positively, like that, but not negatively like that. This harmful spirit from the Lord, God is trying to get Saul's attention. But Saul is continuing to look inwardly. You know, sometimes, beloved, the Lord allows us to struggle with things. 
in an effort to show us that we really don't have the ability to handle the situation on our own. And when that happens, we have two choices. We, we can dig in our heels, we can hunker down, and we say, I can do it myself. We can turn into the little engine that could. You know, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, and I don't need anybody's help. I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. Or we can just stop pretending, and we can reach out for help. Saul doesn't reach out for help. Saul doesn't turn to the Lord. Where does he turn? He turns to his spear again. And David's playing the liar again. And Saul tries to pin David to the wall with a spear again. And again, David is able to elude Saul. Beloved, how about us? What has the Lord been showing us? What has He been showing you that you can't do on your own? Did you, do, you, do you understand that we are not created to live alone we're not created to, as one of my children used to say when they were little, do itself. That's not the way we're created. We're created to live in community with one another. This is one of the reasons, by the way, we're told not to forsake our assembling together. I'm so, as Kim said, I'm glad to have a, a room full of people here. We need one another. Here's a, here's a shocking truth that some of you may not believe, but we don't know ourselves as well as we think we do. None of us do. My, myself, we don't know ourselves as well as we think we do. We have blind spots. We have things that we don't see in ourselves. But guess what? Others see them. And by God's grace, those others come alongside us to help us follow Jesus better. And so specifically those on live stream right now, I'm so glad you've joined us on live stream. But let me ask you, if, if you're able, you're physically able, why don't you consider joining us in person next week? Because there's a different dynamic here with one another than there is when you're just watching a screen. It's a different dynamic. Let's pursue Christ together. Point number three. Michael to the rescue. Yes, that is, by the way, that is a girl's name, okay? Um, notice it doesn't have the E-L on the end. This is a girl's name. Michael to the rescue. See this in verses 11 through 17. Michael comes to the rescue. But first, Saul is going to send messengers to David's house. These messengers, don't, don't be confused about the word messengers. They're, they're, they are there to bring a message from Saul, but the message they're bringing is kill David. That's the message. There's a singular purpose. They, they're to kill David. And so Michael, David's wife, tells David that he needs to escape because in the morning they're planning on killing him. And so David escapes and Michael forms a plan. She takes an image, a household image. This would have been probably something akin to a life-size um, statue. In some houses in the ancient Near East, it would have been a, an, an idol that they worshipped in the house. In David's house, it wasn't likely an idol that they worshipped. David followed the Lord God. But she takes this statue and she puts it in the bed. She puts a little some a pillow of goat's hair, uh, covers it with clothes, makes it look like a person, right? And she tells the messengers that David was sick in bed. But Saul's not buying that. Saul, Saul's not buying that. He, so he says, you know, bring the bed with David in it. You know, I, just bring the whole thing and I'll kill him right there in the bed. It's only then that the messengers realize that they've been hoodwinked. 
You know, there's, there, there's an image in the bed rather than David in the bed. And this leads Saul to ask his daughter, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? Evidently, Saul Saul's thinking that his daughter is going to be more loyal to him than to her husband. But when you get married, let me just share this with you. When you get married, your primary allegiance is no longer with your parents. Your primary allegiance is with your spouse. Now, please don't hear me wrong. This doesn't mean that you have a right as a married person to disrespect or dishonor uh, your, your parents. But how you honor and respect your parents looks different after you're married than it did before you were married. And so Michael sides with David as she should have. But then she tells David what, at least when as I was reading this, appeared to be a lie. Appeared to be a lie. She, she tells Saul, when Saul says, why did you do what you did? She says to him, well, David said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Now, I say it appears to be a lie because, number one, we don't have the entire conversation between David and Michael. We don't, don't know what was happening there. Uh, but number two, even if he did say something like that, he could have meant something of the nature of, listen, as long as you and I are together, your life isn't safe. And so as long as you're with me, Saul is going to kill me. And by relationship, he's going to kill you. And so basically I've killed you. That's a possible way of, of understanding the text, but I think it's far more likely that she made up the story. I think the NIV, or excuse me, the New Living Translation gets it well. It says in verse 17 there, David threatened to kill me if I didn't help him. But why would she lie to her dad? Probably because she had firsthand knowledge of how unstable her dad had become. If her dad thought for a moment that she had been in on David's escape, it wouldn't have ended well for Michael. So she lies. And this raises a super interesting question. Is it permissible, as a Christian, is it permissible to commit a quote-unquote smaller sin so that we can keep a quote-unquote larger sin from taking place? In Christian ethics, this is called a moral dilemma. So, for example, if you, if you were the owner of the Anne Frank house during World War II and a Nazi soldier asked you if you were hiding any Jews in your building, would it have been permissible as a Christian to lie to that Nazi soldier? Now, we might just, of course it is, but the answer isn't always as clear-cut as it may seem at first blush. Some Christian ethicists will argue that it's never right to commit one sin in order to keep another sin from taking place. Others will say, under extraordinary circumstances, those sins can happen. It is interesting, by the way, that we do have more than one example in Scripture of somebody lying to keep another greater sin from happening. We have what's happening here, at least it appears to be a lie. But then we have a clear-cut lie being told by Rahab as she helped the spies uh, when she in Jericho back in the book of Joshua. I, I don't Because it takes far too long, I don't intend to go and answer the moral dilemma question this morning. Maybe it will give you something to talk about over dinner today about moral dilemmas. At any rate, Michael tells a convincing enough story to her dad that his anger is no longer directed toward her. And Michael effectively rescues David from certain death. That's point number three. Point number four, final point. God to the rescue. God to the rescue. Verses 18 and following, i got to tell you something. This, this has been an interesting week in study. 
I'm always learning something, and uh, these have got to be some of the strangest verses in all of 1 Samuel up to this point. David, he gets out of town. He makes his way to Ramah. He's going to spend some time with Samuel. He tells Samuel everything that Saul has been doing to him up to this point, and so the two of them say, let's make our way to Naoth. We don't know exactly where Naoth is, by the way. Um, it may not even be a town. I don't think it is a town. The Hebrew word for Naoth actually means dwellings. And so it may be some type of religious compound right there in Ramah. I think that's likely the case. At any rate, word gets back to Saul where David is. And so he sends his messengers to pay David a visit. And let's remember the only message these guys are bringing is death. But when the first set of messengers arrive in verse 20, look there with me in verse 20, it says, they see the company of prophets prophesying. And the Spirit of the Lord comes upon them and they start prophesying. I read that and I was like, that's interesting. That's fascinating. Why, why would they be prophesying? Well, think about that. Naturally, if they're prophesying, if they're in the midst of prophesying, then they can't deliver their other message. If they're prophesying, they're not going to be killing at the same time. So in verse 21, guess what? Saul gets wind that his messengers are prophesying instead of carrying out his message. And so he sends a second group of messengers. But guess what? They start prophesying as well. Instead of killing... God makes him to prophesy. And so Saul, for the third time, sends yet another group of messengers. And they start prophesying. And finally, this leads to Saul taking matters into his own hand. He travels to Ramah himself and he inquires of the whereabouts of Samuel and David. And he's told they're in Naoth in Ramah. And so Saul goes to Naoth and Ramah and guess what? The Spirit of the Lord comes on Saul and Saul starts prophesying as well. And he prophesied before Samuel, the text tells us, naked all that day and all that night. Now, for the record, this is like kind of PG-13 here, all right? For the, for the record, the word naked here in the original language, it, it could mean that he had nothing on but his birthday suit, okay? That's what it could mean. More likely, it's referring to that he only had his inner garments on, that he had taking his outer garments off. Um, so it would be what we would say he's out there in his underwear. Okay, uh, in, in either case, the addition of the word to, that Saul was doing this to as in T-O-O, it appears that Saul is doing the same thing that his messengers, all three groups of his messengers had done before him. God had caused all of them to prophesy. Now when I was reading this passage, I was looking for, I so desperately want to know what were they prophesying, right? If somebody has a prophecy, what is that prophecy? Tell me what that prophecy... Help me understand what they're saying. And I was looking everywhere in the text for clues, trying to understand what they were saying, but I couldn't find any clues. What's happening here? And then it occurred to me, and, and I may be wrong here, but it occurred to me here that what they were saying wasn't as important as how they were saying it. You see, for, for a people to be genuinely prophesying is for the Lord to speak through them. And we're specifically told at the beginning of this prophesying 
and at the end of this prophesying that the reason they're prophesying is because the Spirit of God came on them. And so what's happening? We have three separate groups of men coming to Naoth and Ramah with one purpose. They're there for one reason and one reason only. They're there to kill David. And then we have the ringleader of them all. After they fail, he shows up to kill David. And in all four of those situations, the Lord intervenes. In all four of those situations, the Lord makes them to at least temporarily to forget their primary mission. And He makes them to prophesy instead. What they said is really not of importance. Now You might find that hard to believe, but what they said is not... If it were important, then God would have included what they said in His Word. But He didn't. He just tells us that He caused them to prophesy. And so what we have here is God Himself rescuing David. And beloved, I want to close by telling you this, that God is still today in the rescue business. Perhaps God will use you as a Jonathan or a Michael to rescue others today. Or perhaps He will send a Jonathan or Michael to rescue you. Or it could be whatever situation you're facing that in in that particular situation that you're in right now that God has given you everything you need in order to escape that particular temptation right now. But it's far more likely that God Himself will rescue you. In fact, that's what God does. He's in the rescue business. You remember David had an advocate between himself and Saul. David had a mediator between himself and Saul. The name of his advocate, the name of that mediator was Jonathan. But we're told in the Bible that there is now only one mediator between God and men. And that mediator's name is Christ Jesus. Friends, the cross, the cross of Christ is God's ultimate rescue mission. Through His death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus has rescued us from our sin. He's rescued us from death itself. And He's rescued us from the devil. I wonder, have you ever experienced that rescue for yourself? Do you know the saving power of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you turned from your sin and trusted Him to rescue you? If you haven't, I would love to talk with you perhaps after the service. My phone number is in the bulletin. You can send me a text. My email is also there. Send me an email or maybe talk. Maybe you have a friend or a family member you're here with and they would love to talk with you about what that rescue means. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You so much that You, even to this day, You are still in the rescue business. And Lord, as as one person who desperately needs to be rescued, I am grateful for Your rescue. I can't do it on my own. Never could. 
do it on my own. And so, Lord, thank you for rescuing us, for rescuing me. I thank you, Father, for rescuing so many that I know even in this room. Lord, we give you praise for that. But, Father, for those maybe here today that are still trying to rescue themselves time and time and time again, trying to rescue themselves and and unsuccessfully so, Lord, I pray that you would help them to find their rescue, their ultimate rescue, in Christ Jesus. Lord, that they would turn from their sin and turn to trust in Jesus. Lord, we thank you and love you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to close with a word of Scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. The Apostle Paul writes, this is verses 24 through 27, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. God bless you and have a wonderful Sunday afternoon. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.